In church over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Daniel, the book of Daniel. Daniel was written um, for a people who were facing real challenges. Challenges of how do you live a life of faith in a culture that is so radically different than you would hope for. And uh, the book of Daniel tells stories about a character called Daniel and how he was living in a new empire. But it's also about a man who not only knows how to act differently, but it's also about a man who learns to see differently. And uh, the whole book as a whole really works on those two levels. There are stories of confrontation, stories of courage, but, but chapters then where he sees life differently. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be particularly looking at seeing. How do you learn to see differently? But today, I want to read from Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. And suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees, his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. And he said to them, to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew even more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen... Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banqueting hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this. Because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you've insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, 
You can keep the gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself even though you knew all this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which can't see or hear or understand. But you didn't honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent this inscription, that he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel passim. This is what the words mean. Many means God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been found, or you've been weighed on the scales, and you've been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a golden chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I just want to notice some things as we reflect on it. The first thing is that just the obvious point, and it's amazing, and we probably don't catch it, but God's at work in this empire. Do you remember how the story was set up? The king, Belshazzar, comes. He's got all his riches, all his privilege. He's having the feast. He's got his concubines there. He's got his, his wives there. They're just having a massive party. And just to just to, to turn the screw, he goes and gets all the goblets that have been in the temple in Jerusalem, the holy stuff. And he says, let's drink out of these. Let's degrade Judaism. Let's laugh at any of the gods except the gods we've made. It's kind of supposed to make you feel indignant as a reader. For Jewish readers, of course, they would recognize this has happened more times than enough. If we were in Cheatham Hill this morning or Higher Broughton reading this passage, they would tell you stories time and time and time again how people have gone into the temple or into synagogues and have tried to deface and to diminish and say, you're God's rubbish. And that's what was going on here. There was times when the Romans did it classically and 
memorably when they were trying to destroy the temple. They brought in all their, they had big sort of like banners with the Roman symbols on and they went into the most holy of places where only the law was and only the high priest went and they ripped it all down and they put their Roman standards there and they said, see, you think your God's any good? That's what Belshazzar's doing. You're supposed to feel, oh God, it's all over. But the remarkable thing is, God's at work in that very place where people have hardened their hearts so much against God, where they have been so outrageous against God, God's at work. Because at the heart of the empire, there's a human hand that gives a message from God to the king. There is no place in God's earth where God has not got access. And that's absolutely really important for us to remember. There is no place on God's earth where God has not got absolute access. In the darkest of places, in the most uh, tyrannical of places, in the most totalitarian of places, in the places where people's hearts are most closed, there is no area where God doesn't say, I can't get there. Absolutely amazing that God's at work and, to use that phrase, which is indeed where the phrase came from, the writing's on the wall. That's where the phrase comes from. The writing is on the wall. But this is the important thing is, God's writing. God's writing. Second thing, amazing thing, is that uh, the king... I was going to say, the amazing thing is the king takes some advice from his wife. That's always amazing when a man takes advice from his wife. But what is amazing is that in the midst of this, when the king is so perturbed, so anxious, and I think there is a comedy value, by the way. I said this last week when we were reading from Daniel. I think there is. I think there's elements of this story you're supposed to laugh at. Here's the king of the whole empire, and his legs are knocking together. You're supposed to laugh. I mean, it's not, you know, as I said, it's not slapstick, but it's, it's kind of like a wry smile. And the king gets all his most, his wisest, his most senior officials in, and he says, what do these words mean? And the officials go, we have no idea. We can't, we can neither read them nor interpret them. We can't actually make out what the word says, and we certainly don't know what it means. And the queen says, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Now, the interesting thing about this is that that is not how a Jewish person would have talked about themselves. They would not have said, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. This is a a non-believer talking about a believer in the kingdom. Sometimes they can't quite explain what it is about you. But they know there's something different. And there's a man, the queen says, there's a man in your kingdom who you took into captivity. There's a man that you changed. You tried to change him. You gave him a new name. You gave him a new diet. You gave him new language. You gave him new literature. And yet, there's something different about him. It'd be brilliant if they said it about us, wouldn't it? Looks the same, acts the same, she speaks the same language, 
She's involved in the same stuff, but there's something about her. We don't get it, but there's something about her. Well, what was Daniel? Daniel was a man of wisdom. One of the things that um, I think I said before, but it's worth repeating and just reminding you is that when you were in your own land and you had your temple and you had your priests and you had the law and you could do it the way God said, then all you needed to do really was obey the law. But when you're in Babylon, in a different culture, where you've not got your temple, you've not got your priests, you've not got the same ability to do the law the same, how do you live for God there? Well, Daniel's story is you live for God there through wisdom. Wisdom becomes really important. Wisdom is you know who you are, you know whose you are, you know who you belong to, you know how your life is being framed, but you articulate it differently. You speak about your faith differently, and the things you're called to are different. And one of the things that Daniel's always been called to is, we're having bad dreams. Can you tell us what's going on? We're seeing weird stuff. Can you tell us what it means? This didn't happen in the earlier part of the Bible but it happens in exile. I wonder what the people around you are grappling with. They're probably not grappling with the authorship of Leviticus or uh, just, you know, how Mosaic law works out in practice. They're not asking those sort of questions. They're asking really obvious questions like, how do you be happy? How do you live well? How do you make sense of life? How do you, do, how do you work well? How do you bring your kids up well? What does it mean as you get older? Those are the sort of questions that we're asking. What are we worth? This morning's debate on the news you might have caught. At what age should children be legally allowed to, to have sexual relationships? Is it 16 or is it 15? We seem to be living in a changing culture and we don't know how best to protect or to guide our young people. That's what they're asking for. And there's nothing in the Bible that tells you the legal age for sex. There's no text you can go to and say, ah, well, in the Bible it says it's 16. And you're left thinking, well, if there's nothing in the Bible that tells me what age it should be, how do we comment? God, what we need is wisdom. Wisdom that understands what sex is about, understands what young people are about, understands about why it's so precious, and wisdom to be able to persuade people that actually it's not okay just to let everything go as it is. Sex is too good to be wasted. Wisdom. And this is Daniel with wisdom. Wisdom is godly skill in everyday living. That's what wisdom looks like. And in James, in the book of James in the New Testament, he begins his letter by saying, if you lack wisdom, ask. And I don't know, but the older I get, when people do say from time to time, what can I pray for you? It's kind of like a stock answer now. I need wisdom. And it's not a cop-out. It's not like a, an easy thing to say. It's actually the thing I'm becoming more and more aware that as an individual Certainly as churches, the thing we need more and more is wisdom. How do you do godly skill in everyday living? And the second thing about Daniel is he was a man of courage. Did you hear him? He said to Belshazzar, he said, I can, I, I'll, I'll do this for you. 
brilliantly said, though, you can keep. I'm not after your patronage. Because your baubles don't mean anything to me. You keep your trinkets. And uh, before he gets to the writing on the wall, Daniel said, let me tell you about your dad. He said, I knew your father, and I know what happened to him. He said, and your father, there were times when he was a really good king, and there was times when his heart got so hard and arrogant and proud that God humbled himself. It's kind of like, I don't know if you, as I was reading it, if you were catching what was going on, but the story is that King Nebuchadnezzar goes through a period of madness. It is very similar to the madness of King George, that period that that film was made of, where he just seems to lose it. Except in this case, Nebuchadnezzar realized that God was trying to communicate with him. And Daniel says to his son, he said, you saw what happened to your father and you remember what your father said and you haven't learnt. How much courage does that take? That sort of courage comes from people who know there's nothing you can do to me that is outside of God's hand. You can banish me, you can take everything I have off me, you can kill me, but actually I'm not afraid of you. And those people are the most frightening people in the world. Some of you are in teaching. You can tell just by your eyes. Some of you are in teaching. And you know the most difficult kids to deal with are the kids that are just saying, I don't care. <laughs> you can do whatever you want to me. I don't care. Because it's like, well, what, what do we do? And those are the frightening people in our society. <coughs> The people who go, I'm not playing your game. And Daniel was a man who wasn't playing the game. What's courage? Courage has been defined like this. Courage is fear that said its prayers. I kind of like that. Courage is not being, having no fear, but courage is, I'm frightened, but I've prayed. And the message was, well, the message is many, many tekel person and the, the hand on the wall and it was an image that came from the scales and it said, essentially the message is this, God has seen you, you're not in charge, God's in charge, you can't act as you like, God has watched you and, next slide, the game is over, your kingdom is at an end, game over. That's a story that was told for people in exile. That God's at work. Now the question is, does he still do stuff like that? Some of you might have seen this, but um, on the 8th of November, this was posted on the BBC site in the religion and ethics section of the, their website. And the heading is, did a prayer meeting really bring down the Berlin Wall? Let me, let me read you a precy of what that long article says. Disillusioned with the Berlin Wall, Pastor Führer began organising prayers for peace every Monday evening beginning in 1982. On many occasions, fewer than a dozen people attended the prayer meetings. The East German government strongly discouraged its citizens from being involved in religious activities, but the meetings continued every Monday without fail. 
In 1985, Pastor Führer put an open to all sign outside the church. Such a gesture was loaded with symbolism as the church provided the only space in East Germany where people could talk about things that couldn't be discussed in public. Meetings were open to everyone. Young people, Christians and atheists all sought refuge there. Attendances soared as the word of the peace prayers spread. For years, the prayer meetings had been largely ignored by the East German authorities due to the lack of numbers. But as the scale of the gatherings grew, the pastor and his followers were threatened and pressure was put on them to stop the meetings. But they remained resolute. Things came to a head on the 7th of October 1989. There were hundreds of arrests made among the crowds in front of our church. Eric Honecker, the communist leader of East Germany, had declared that the church should be closed. The police used brute force against the demonstrators and lots of people were beaten. The church was visited by doctors who told us that hospital rooms had been made available for patients with bullet wounds. We were absolutely terrified of what might happen. What they also talked about, and they had interviews with women who'd been, who, who this, effectively the German social state, uh, services had come to and said, if you continue, we're going to take your children away from you. What would you do? It's only a prayer meeting. But on the 9th of October 1989, as Leipzigers returned home from work, they saw the city fill with soldiers and police increasing the sense of foreboding. Up to 8,000 people crowded into St. Nicholas Church, including members of the feared Stasi, who'd been sent to occupy it. But at the decisive moment, the police stood aside and let the protesters march by. Pastor Führer said, they didn't attack. They had nothing to attack for. East German officials would later say they were ready for anything except for candles and prayer. The late Brian Hanrahan, you might remember him, former diplomatic editor of BBC News said, it took great personal courage to confront a government notorious for its ruthlessness. There was a sense of foreboding that this was likely to end with a great deal of bloodshed. I found out just how close that came to happening. A massacre was just minutes away. About 120,000 people took to the streets the following Monday. Eric Honecker resigned two days later, and exactly a month later, the Berlin Wall came down. Pastor Führer was adamant the Berlin Wall would not have collapsed without the events in Leipzig. Things were happening here that weren't happening anywhere else, he said. The people who came to demonstrate on the 9th of October came from all over East Germany. Without Leipzig, the Berlin Wall would not have fallen, let alone the reunification of Germany. What moved me the most, he said, was that people who'd grown up in two atheist dictatorships, first the Nazis, then the communist regime, were able to distill the message of Jesus into two words, no violence. Without the church, it would have been like all other revolutions before, bloody and unsuccessful. Brian Hanrahan said the importance of that night could not be overestimated. And after it was all over, Pastor Führer and St. Nicholas Church, the pastor continued his role in the church until he retired in 2009. And the weekly prayers continue at the church every Monday night. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, St. Nicholas went back to being a normal parish church. Pastor Führer said their actions had not been about boosting attendance figures in their congregation. We did it because the church has to do it. 
Now, here's the challenge. At what point do we as Christians say, actually, the most vital thing we do is pray? The stories, some of the stories we've not highlighted yet in Daniel are where Daniel keeps on praying. And prayer, to be honest, there's not one of us in the room who feels we, we're good enough at it or we do it enough. If there's, do you know what I mean? There's an, an old-fashioned way of making people in church feel guilty. It's just talk about prayer. Do you know what I mean? Just talk about prayer. But it's interesting, isn't it, that on the BBC site, they want to say, well, actually, what's the connection between a Monday night prayer meeting with a handful of people four years before the ball falls and the massive political change that happens later? Daniel would want to say, you can't set up a state that flaunts itself in front of God without God being involved. And there's something about us tying our two worlds together here the world of the Bible, and the problem with the book of Daniel is that some of the book of Daniel, half of the book of Daniel is brilliant, isn't it? It's all those stories, you know, like lion's dens and furnaces and writing on walls. They do it back there in the Sunday school. That's a problem. And we sort of think, oh, they're sort of like Sunday school stories. The second half of Daniel is so difficult to understand, we'd never read it. But it's kind of like that. But this is the point, is, is that world and our world, are they at all connected In other words, what might it mean for us in our space to be saying, actually, God's not finished here yet? Because there's people of hope who are willing to speak to power at times and say to power and those in power, you can't just live without reference to the one who created you. The people who say, we'll pray and we'll carry on praying. And we'll pray even if it's a cost. Most of us have never, and I'm not, I'm not making, I don't want to make you feel guilty. It, this is true of me. I have never had to pay any cost to pray. It has not cost me anything. It's not cost me a thing to pray. Occasionally I mumble and grumble about an hour that I have to go out. It's not cost me a thing. But if those of you that have got young children were told, if you carry on going to that prayer meeting, we're going to take your children off you. Or if the doctors came and said, the hospital rooms are waiting for you. There are people who are our brothers and sisters around the world who are much closer to the book of Daniel than we feel. And then, finally, in order that this doesn't just sort of end up, ooh, a flip. <laughs> this is, so how do I make sense of this? As an individual, the two, two aspects of Daniel in the story that God gave him were wisdom and courage. Wisdom to know what to do and courage to do it. And I wonder whether, for some of us, that would be the prayer. Lord, what I really need is wisdom. But what I really need as well is courage. To speak, to act, to be bold, 
not to be concerned because I trust more in the God whose hand writes on the walls of kings and empires who want to degrade the people of God. I'm more aware of that God than I am about my situation. Lord, I want to pray for your spirit to rest upon us, that we might be agents of the good news of the kingdom. Lord, I pray that people might spot in us something that's different. They might not be able to articulate it a way we would, but Lord, they might spot it and they, we might be called to use wisdom and courage in the context that are really tricky. And I pray for those of us this week who are going into very difficult situations. I pray for wisdom. I pray that we will know how to act and how to react, what to say, what not to say, when to hold our peace and when to speak courageously. And the courage to stand up to things that are not right. And I pray, Lord, that even if that courage means that it will cost us, Lord, I pray for courage and boldness that takes a stand for the things that we know you would want us to to be about. Lord, we ask for our country that your hand might be upon it. Lord, in the way that Christians in East Germany were disillusioned with what was going on around them, Lord, I pray for the things that we're disillusioned by. Lord, help us not just to mourn, but help us to bring them to you with the vision of something new. Lord, as we worship, build a throne, we pray. And may we bow before it in the name of Jesus. Amen.